The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Steve Ellis. He is a commercial beekeeper based in Barrett, Minnesota, and he is a national advocate for curbing the use of neonicotinoid pesticides. He has also filed a lawsuit against the U.S. EPA for sanctioning the widespread use of these chemicals in agriculture without considering harm to bees and endangered species. Welcome, Steve. Uh, Thank you, Melinda. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, I am concerned as a dietitian about the health of our bees because it's my understanding that one out of every three bites of food is dependent on these insects. And while there are many pollinators that go to work for us to bring us the foods that we love, bees are in trouble and we have been on alert about their dying species. We hear the term colony collapse disorder We hear that we don't really know the cause. There could be contributions from many different sources. But I wanted to talk to a beekeeper to find out what's been going on with these vital insects. And you have been in the beekeeping business for more than 35 years. Is that correct? I've been uh, commercially keeping bees for over 35 years, almost 40. How did you get into this field? Well, I started as a hobby. And uh, then I got a summer job working for a commercial beekeeper and wound up really enjoying it. And kind of like a funny story, I I met the beekeeper. I really enjoyed the profession and fell in love with the beekeeper's daughter. And all of a sudden, I was in the bee bee business. (laughs) That's great. That's wonderful. Well, tell me, you have been doing this for a number of decades. So you, I'm sure, have witnessed changes in the industry or perhaps the way we raise bees. And I wonder if you could walk us through what things were like or what the profession was like when you first started and some of the challenges then and some of the challenges that you face today. Uh, When I first started with bees, there was a lot less chemical use in agriculture and there was a lot less chemical exposure these were a lot healthier, they had a lot greater vitality, and we actually had the problem of having too many bees. A lot of people would figure how they would thin and cull their herds out wow. uh, because they were so prolific and so fertile. Slowly, as exposures to toxins and poisons have increased and pressures have increased, the vitality and fertility have gone down of this organism, and it's been a steady decline to where we really have trouble restocking our operations, most of us now, on a yearly basis. So Hmm. it's been a dramatic shift. Were there specific toxins in the environment that you were able to connect with the bees' decline? Yes, it is All of the above, this massive increase in the toxicity loading of our environment is Mm. very widespread and and very, and very, it's kind of almost hard to describe to listeners that don't live in rural America 
but one of the biggest growth industries is chemical application services. We see huge new facilities going up in all the small towns in the last five or ten years, and the capacity to put amazing volumes of things out on the land. It's just astronomical, the loading that is occurring out in, in agricultural country. Mm. Yeah, you know, when I drive through farm communities, I guess I've been taught to see the land a little bit differently. And the thing that comes to mind and what frightens me are the monocultures. And farmers have told me that decades ago, there were more farms, of course, and they were also more biodiverse. And now what we see, at least in the Midwestern region, is the predominance of corn and soy Farther north, maybe we'll see wheat and some canola. Farther south, there's cotton. But largely, certainly in your state, in Minnesota, you see a lot of corn and soy produced. And it's my understanding that the majority of those seeds are coated with a specific pesticide called a neonicotinoid. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's a subject that is near and dear to my heart because I've had a number of instances where I've had direct exposure and direct bee kills and direct injury from this use. So I've studied quite a bit on it, and almost all of the field corn that is planted, virtually 100% of the main varieties, comes pre-treated to the farmer. The farmer literally has no choice whether or not there will be a neonicotinoid coating on the corn seed that he plants. With soybeans, I think it's closer to 50 or 60% of it that gets coated, and if the farmer works at it, he can acquire uncoated soybean seed. But the problem is a lot of these seeds just come pre-treated, and the farmer has no choice. As we work to educate farmers on the harms and the lack of need for this product, it's a hard thing to fight if it comes pre-treated and they can't get it without Mm. So that's been a real problem. Yes, it's on all these seeds, and the use of it is massive. Uh, the acreage that it is being applied to is astronomical. It's 25% of our land surface, and it's just really widespread. It's the biggest chemical application of insecticides that occurs by volume and by toxicity, and according to US EPA, it is not even a pesticide application. It is a treated article, and it is exempted from pesticide regulations, which is a terrible travesty, in my opinion. Oh, my. Well, I did a search before our interview, and I found that corn and soy, as well as sunflowers, the sunflower seeds are pre-treated, as well as some wheat is also pre-treated. And what I find interesting about this particular category of insecticides, too, is that it's my understanding from other researchers that the majority of the insecticide leaves the seed, and it can get into our aquatic systems, and it can also, of course, travel through the plant and get into the pollen, and there is how we find the bee damage. So I had no idea, though, about the EPA regulation and how when I go to the US EPA website and I want to see different pesticide use maps, are you telling me that the neonicotinoid rates, the seed coatings are not included in those? That is absolutely correct. Wow. Okay. So when were you able 
to connect the dots between the neonicotinoids specifically and harm to bees? Well, I've been working with a number of other beekeepers nationally. And when David Hackenberg first approached us and explained his concerns with neonicotinoids, a lot of us started to look around and see if that was showing up in our areas too. And sure enough, we were starting to see problems as well. And it was about 2006. The land-grant universities that service the extension services and, and local rural communities and farmers, have they done any research? Do we have good solid evidence that neonicotinoids harm our bee populations? Well, there's kind of two different subjects in your question here. Okay. <laughs> research at our land-grant universities and USDA has been a really a problem in the United States and even somewhat in Europe, but less in Europe because um, in Europe they do not allow corporate money to influence the research or to contribute to the university research. They fully fund their scientists. And so they get more unbiased information from their university scientists than we do in our country because of allowing corporations to influence researchers. And it's a big problem in the United States, the influence that is being exerted in USDA and in land-grant universities. Both of our two leading bee scientists at USDA, Dr. Jeff Pettis and Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, were both doing very important bee research on the neonicotinoids, and both were told to stop doing this research as research scientists in USDA, and they wouldn't. So they were driven out of their positions, and neither one is currently employed by USDA. There's whistleblowing lawsuits in both cases. They were given national awards by both of our beekeeping organizations, but we are under attack. Science is under attack in the United States. And in the bee research, and especially with regards to neonicotinoids, science is very much under attack. It's really a shame because then the average farmer or beekeeper, eater, consumer, really has nowhere to go to find the truth about what's happening to our insects. And because these particular chemicals are considered to be neurotoxins, one has to wonder who's doing the research on these chemicals in terms of human health as well as bees. You know, I tend to see bees as indicator species. So they show us if the bees are being harmed by a particular insecticide, one would think that there might be an effect on other non-target organisms. I completely agree with the premise I use the terminology that pollinators and, and honeybees, to a large extent, are a canary in the coal mine of commercial agricultural production. And when they start getting sick, we should be paying attention to this canary, just as the miners used to pay attention to the canary in the coal mines that was more sensitive to the lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about your bee operation. You take your hives nationally to help pollinate crops that we all love, such as the almonds in California. 
how is business going for you? Well, it's the best of times and the worst of times that when you say how business is going, uh, because of the shortage, prices for almond pollination have increased dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years while we've been having this trouble with bees. Good hives of bees rent for 10 times what they did as short a time as 10 years ago. Almond growers can't get enough good bees, and they're willing to pay very large amounts for what people have that are good. So if you can keep some bees healthy and alive, and that's the big if, it can be good times financially because everybody is having so much trouble, everybody nationally, that the pollination fees are going through the roof. And you can, if you can keep your bees going and you can do all the inputs that you need, you can make pretty good money, which is a, a kind of a paradox of the mm. situation. Mm-hmm. When times are tough in agriculture, that is when people make money. It was kind of like Forrest Gump when all the other shrimp boats were wrecked. He went out and he, with a shrimp boat and he could make big bucks off of selling shrimp. When there's a shortage, prices go up. When in agriculture, when there's a glut and production is high, everybody goes broke. It's the paradox of agriculture that the producer does badly during really good times. And the producer can actually make money during challenging, difficult times. It's weird. It is. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Steve Ellis. He is a commercial beekeeper based in Barrett, Minnesota, and he is also the lead plaintiff of a lawsuit which claims the EPA-approved products containing neonicotinoid insecticides without adequately considering harm to bees and endangered species. When we talk about the economics of farming and food production I have to think about the consumer in the grocery store, and I can only assume that the price of almonds will go up as the price to the producer goes up for the pollinating services. So while a few people may be able to make good money, ultimately, I think the eater at the end also has a price to pay. Yes, absolutely. The eater at the end has a price and a kind of an opportunity to weigh in and change things. People can and are insisting more and more on clean, residue-safe foods and produce, and organic is growing rapidly, and consumers are saying that they don't want to be exposed to these toxins in their food. And that is a trend that I think will continue. And I think that consumers can have a huge influence on markets. Right. And we should qualify that when we were talking about seeds that are coated, those would be conventional seeds, uh, GMO seeds, but organic seeds are not allowed to have that insecticide coating. So you're right. That is one way that consumers can exert pressure in the marketplace. Absolutely. So what other crops are needing your services for pollination? Well, myself personally, I only pollinate the almonds, but I have other acquaintances in the bee business that do blueberries in Maine. They do cranberries in Massachusetts or cranberries in Wisconsin. They do oranges. Some do (laughs) carrots and onions. A friend of mine, Brett Aidy, pollinates onions and carrots and 
actually the onions make kind of an interesting honey, but people miss the fact oftentimes that a lot of these crops, even like broccoli or carrots, are grown as two-year crops, and they bloom the second year. And if you want to raise them for seed to plant in your garden, they have to be pollinated to set the seed to put in the little pack that you stick in your garden. So tons of things need to be pollinated, way more than anybody realizes. Yeah, and I think it's a great way to help explain the travesty that we're experiencing with these insecticides when we go back and we think, oh my gosh, I eat those foods, I love those foods. And if we harm the pollinator, we won't be able to have access to those foods. Or if we do, there'll be a scarcity situation where the price will go through the roof and many consumers already that are struggling economically won't be able to afford the food. So I want to know about your lawsuit. So you decided that what was happening was wrong. Did you contact the Department of Agriculture in your own state of Minnesota first? When did you decide to file a lawsuit then against the EPA? Yes, I have worked all of the channels that you might conventionally think of a person would exhaust first. I've worked with our bee industry in several years of meetings directly with the ag chem industry called the Bear Bee Dialogue Committee. Mm -hmm. I served on that for two years, and we do a dialogue directly with Bear Crop Science. And we worked with them collaboratively for two years and had that go sour. And then we worked after that for five years with EPA, trying to get them to change regulations. And it became apparent that the scientists that really cared about things at EPA would take us aside as a group and say, you know, politically, we just can't change things. The, the politics and the power isn't there. It's all on the other side of the equation. If you want something to change at EPA, the only way to get it to change is to sue us. So we were actually instructed by EPA that if we wanted to see change, that was the only way we were going to get it. Hmm. And it's how a sad state of affairs. It is. And how easy was it to find an attorney that would take your case? Not. Not easy. Did a lot of soul searching and shopping and trying to find the perfect fit. And then, of course, the cost of right. running such a litigation is extraordinary. And I'm not uh, independently wealthy kind of a person that I can, or, or the people that I know, that we can contemplate fully funding such a thing. So we had to come together, cobble together a legal coalition with others and with others with resources and with legal resources the ones that seemed like the best fit at the time were Center for Food Safety, and that's the one that we went with. You've been a member of the National Honeybee Advisory Board. Does the national honeybee industry, do they have funds to help support the protection of bees against these toxic chemicals? Short answer, no. We're... Unfortunately, we're a very independent group and actually a very small group and not a well-organized group. 
Beekeepers are very independent type people, just like farmers are very independent type people. Right. And there's a lot of differences of opinion of how things should be pursued, and and, uh, there's not a lot of unity. A lot just think the subject should be left alone completely because it's just going to cause trouble if you raise a ruckus. And Mm. and so there's we're very small. So like I learned in, in my working with Bayer, the entire collective bee industry has one-tenth of one lobbyist's time in Washington. One-tenth of one lobbyist's time. Bayer has 12 full-time lobbyists. We were invited to their lobbying headquarters on Pennsylvania Avenue, directly between the White House and Capitol Hill, where they have an entire block and you have to go through security to get up to their upper floor of, of their building that takes up an entire block. And they have buffet lines, and they're, they're set up. They know what they're doing. The bee industry, like I say, is not set up and is very underfunded and undergunned in Washington. Hmm. So what happened with the lawsuit? Where are we to date? So... This particular lawsuit, which was to bring into question the registration of clothanidin and thiamethoxin in general, that they were improperly registered to begin with, the judge ruled favorably on one of our 12 counts. It was a narrow ruling victory that took into consideration 62 products that were, she said, improperly registered because during a limited period of time, that she recognized they did not do due diligence in properly registering them. So then we we went through mandatory mediation, and it's kind of like, let's make a deal, right? Mm -hmm. So the judge said, you will do this, you will go in, you will come to some type of a deal or arrangement, Uh, arranged it for us two or three times. We didn't like the deals. We tried to hold out for better deals. What we finally wound up having to settle for, and it was just recently settled, was for 12 of the 62 products that she recognized to be voluntarily removed from the market by the registrants, and for EPA to agree to open for public comment the subject of mixing different chemicals together, what's commonly called tank mixing. Mm Mm-hmm and to to open that for public comment and to study that. EPA also agreed to do endangered species consideration work on these chemicals sometime in the next five years. These are things that are not going to give us immediate help out in the field, but they are, you know, unfortunately when you go to court, you wind up sometimes with a settlement that doesn't give you what you originally went in to ask for. You wind up with some, you ask for the moon and you get crumbs. (laughs) Right. Well, you've been doing this for years. And during all of this time, the bees are still being challenged. And I wonder the changes that came about as a result of your lawsuit, will it be enough to save the bees? Unfortunately, no. I was hoping when we filed the suit, because it was it was originally geared to directly take on clothiandidin and thymethoxin, two of the biggest use neonicotinoids as a class, and their very registration 
of them being improper. I thought that that could have a significant impact. Whether we got settled down to will not have a significant immediate impact, no. We're going to have to keep working other avenues and other directions to try to get a significant change out on the ground. Um, And we really do have to have a change out on the ground because what's going on out there is it's hard to describe the the level of the damage that is is being done by the the massive use of these neonicotinoids. Mm. And they're long-lived in the environment. They're taken up by the plants that they're put on, but they're also taken up by anything else that they come in contact with. They drift off, they're taken up by other plants. And so a lot of weeds and wildflowers and borders are being tested with high levels of neonic in their pollen and nectar that the bees are feeding on. And they weren't even on the treated fields. Right. So this is not just extending to the, the acres that are treated. It's the whole area surrounding the acres that are treated that becomes toxic. And then it washes into the waterways and has effects in, on aquatic systems that are they're still being studied but are, are well documented. So it's the problem that we have to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I hope that people will look into it more and understand the scope and the scale of what's at stake here because the amount that's being used, the area that's being covered, and the toxicity of these things, they're 10,000 times more toxic to a bee ounce for ounce than was DDT. These are the most toxic compounds that have ever been de- developed or released for insecticidal use. Hmm. Well, you've got a whole group of people listening who care about the food that they eat and they care about beekeepers and food producers and farmers. What would you like us to do? Well, there are a, a number of things that pe- everybody can do, and they all make a difference. Uh, if you have like just a, a window box in an apartment in, in Brooklyn and you want to plant a couple of flowers in your window box, When you go to the nursery, make sure that your flowers that you're purchasing were not treated with neonics and they are not going to express neonicotinoids to the insects that come to your apartment flowers that you're putting out there. Everybody can do that. Ask when you go to buy nursery flowers or plants and only purchase plants that are not treated. Speak to your neighbors and your friends. That is oftentimes... Groundwork is hugely important, and uh, one conversation that might seem uh, small or irrelevant at the time will stick with people. And I've found people come to me and say later, you know, that one thing that you brought up, that I've been thinking about that, and I'm going to do that one thing a little bit differently. And people do. They listen to their friends and neighbors. Write your legislators. Speak up, because uh, the other side's very organized got a lot of money. I've already alluded to that, and and I think your listeners probably know it. We are working against a very well-organized, well-funded monetary machine, and the only way to get their attention is for people to really speak up and and make it known that that this needs to change. Well, I want to thank you for raising awareness and giving us some strategies. I would add, let's also choose organic food 
because that yeah. will be helpful as well. But we must close, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Steve Ellis, commercial beekeeper based in Barrett, Minnesota, and a national advocate for curbing the use of dangerous neonicotinoid pesticides. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Melinda. It's been an honor.